Hey everyone, welcome to the Five Beer Plan. I'm Brian, and this is the ongoing saga of an everyman's ale trail. In this episode, I'll sniff out skunky beers, talk freshness of beer, chat with Corey Smith from Twin Oast Brewing in Port Clinton, Ohio, and review Gathering from Wildside Brewing. In this segment of Tales from the Trail, I want to talk about a subject that would make Pepe Le Pew proud. Skunky beer. If you've ever experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. You pop the top on a bottle of beer, and your olfactory receptors are immediately hit with this off-putting stench. It might happen anywhere. At the beach, in the backyard, or even in the comfort of your own home. Like me, at first you might think that this is emanating from one of the people you're drinking beer with. But after asking the difficult question and clearing the air, so to speak, you realize it is the beer and not your brother. So what causes this? One of my listeners, Joe, from Sherwood, Ohio, sent a message asking me to take a light flight into the chemical pronilthiol. Wikipedia says the following. Pronilthiol, or 3-methyl-2-butane-2-thiol, is a chemical compound. It is one of a group of chemicals that give cannabis its characteristic skunk-like aroma. It is also present in lightstruck or skunky beer. Skunking, like brewing itself, is quite simply a chemical reaction. A beer becomes lightstruck when it is exposed to UV or visible light, exactly the kind that comes from the sun. Most beer is brewed with hops, and hops contain compounds called isoalpha acids, or isohumulones, that are created when beer is brewed. These isohumulones give IPAs their distinctive bitter flavor craved by hopheads worldwide. The exposure of beer to light causes riboflavin, or vitamin B2, to break down these isohumulones and produce pronilthiol. There have been considerable efforts made in the beer industry in general to combat this problem. If we think through the problem a bit more, the obvious answer is not to let light get to the beer in the first place. Clearly, cans provide beer the most protection since no light may penetrate. But there is just something about the weight and the shape of a bottle of beer that is appealing, and of course it gives you that classic clink when you finish offering up a toast with your friends. Clear bottles are the most susceptible to being light-struck for obvious reasons. Green bottles are slightly better, but not much. Brown bottles provide the best protection of all, according to scientific testing somewhere around four times more than clear bottles. So why don't brewers use brown bottles? Honestly, there is some historicity to the reason for this. In a previous episode, I shared that beer was bottled in green glass in Europe due to a shortage of brown bottles during World War II. So prior to the craft beer movement of the last 50 years, we beer drinkers across the pond came to expect that European imports bottled in green glass were somehow premium beers. I know I did. And as for clear glass bottles, who knows for sure. I'm sure that there is some cost differential associated with using colored bottles, but in the grand scheme of things, it seems to be all about nostalgia or marketing. In an article on the subject, VinePair notes this, People know Corona as a skunked beer, so those loyal to the brand might not want to change in taste. Huh. In another article I found on beer safety, it's mentioned that, in some cases such as Miller High Life, a hops extract that does not have isohumulones is used to bitter the beer so it cannot be light-struck. So clearly, the mass-produced macro beer industry is aware of the problem. 
For those in the craft industry space, I'm sorry, but in this era of brewing, having light-struck beer as a normal thing is not acceptable. Having interacted with dozens from the craft industry over the years, I know that you put your heart and your soul into your beer. So why take the chance to ruin the beer or your reputation? If you're an independent craft brewer and don't take the proper precautions to avoid your beers being light-struck, please take a step back and think about what you need to do moving forward. It might be changing the bottles you're using, or perhaps tweaking the packaging or labels to minimize the amount of light hits the beer, or simply putting it in cans. In a bit of a twist, some IPAs nowadays are intentionally brewed with certain hop varieties that can give you this kind of a cannabis-like profile. If you enjoy this kind of aromatic or flavor experience, on the Beer Maverick website, eight different varieties of hops are identified that can give this kind of a profile. Apollo, Chinook, Columbus, CTZ, Galaxy, Strata, Styrian Colibri, and Summit. So seek out beers that have these kind of hops, and perhaps you'll find your sweet spot. This week's hop hack is about the freshness of beer. Just like many food products, most packaged beer today will have a born on, a canned on, or a drink by date. Often it's stamped on the bottom of the can, but sometimes it's on the label or the bottle itself, and depending on the color scheme, can be tricky to find since the ink is usually black. A great example of this is Stone's Drink By series. I don't know where you stand on having a beer that's months or even years past its packaging date, but I will often take a chance on a single beer in the back of the cooler of my favorite bottle shop. This happened to me over a year ago when I popped in and I found a bottle of Cuvée de Jacobines Rouge Flanders Red Ale from Omer van der Geenst. It wasn't until I got home that I noticed the bottle date was March 2016. When I started looking at the description of the beer, it noted that it had been aged for at least 18 months prior to being released, making this beer over 6 years old. Honestly, I'm not sure whether it was a mistake or not by the bottle shop, but I was happy to run across this beer. Some styles age better than others. I've talked about it before. Higher ABV stouts or porters, barrel-aged anything, lambics, and barley wines are some examples of beer that may be consumed well after the canned or bottling date. If you're like me, you have a steady stream of beers that make it to your fridge and sometimes you can't drink it fast enough, or things just get shuffled around and you forget the hazy IPA or the pale ale that you bought last summer. I really have no shame over trying a beer that's been around for a while. If it has been canned or bottled properly, it should be okay. In such cases where I have question, I'll pop it open, give it a good sniff to make sure it's not spoiled, and if it passes that test, pour it into a glass. I'll then take a small sip just to double check it before diving full on. I'm also not adverse to drain pouring a beer whether it's fresh or not if it doesn't seem right. There's no need to make yourself sick. And let's not forget about skunked beer. As I've noted, there are plenty of macro breweries well aware that their beer doesn't smell fresh. Definitely use good judgment when sampling something that doesn't smell like you expect. There's likely a good reason. All right, well, welcome to Barstool Banter. I'm sitting down uh, virtually with Corey Smith from Twin Oaks Brewing in Port Clinton, Ohio. Corey, thanks for uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to join me on the podcast. Yeah, and thanks for having me. Uh, I love talking beer any chance I get, so I'm excited. Excellent. Excellent. Love to hear that. Can you tell me what your role is at the brewery? So I'm one of the founders. My, my whole family owns it. You know, I was kind of the driving force behind it. I was the home brewer first who wanted to start a brewery. And eventually, after about 10 years of home brewing, realized that the beer was pretty good. And so uh, people got on board and, and the whole family went in. 
And now my, my day-to-day role is really I'm the GM. So I kind of put owner operator on all my business cards. I'm the one who's there day to day and I'm the one who's trying to keep everything running, uh, keeping high level on everything uh, between helping decide what beers we, we put out next and taking care of uh, as much of the tap room as possible and doing as much of the accounting as I can. And, and you know, it's way too many hats for one title, but that's kind of how it goes. Right. That's definitely something that I hear a lot from the owner of brewers that I've talked to so far, just that you get spread a little bit too thin because you really have to have your hands in a lot of different areas just to make sure that you have a pulse of what's happening with the business and the industry. Exactly. And there's the natural thing of, again, this is kind of my baby and I don't want things to kind of go away from my vision. So there's a little bit of that in there too. What's kind of cool about this whole journey is as I've, as you've gotten into it, you find the people who you trust to make the right decisions. And our brewer just became our new head brewer about eight months ago. And his first two beers that he put out, I was like, hey, you wanted to put a couple of different things out. One was a, a, a session IPA. And the first two beers he put out were fantastic. And people okay. really just ate them up. And I said, okay, if I can relinquish a little bit of that creativity to you and it, it resonates with our customers, then yeah, that's, that's a perfect place I can delegate. And I think that's, uh, that's important in this industry is you really... Clearly, you can't do it all yourself. And it's really important to surround yourself with people that you're comfortable with, that you've got this team that you've assembled that can carry out these day-to-day operations, still kill it, still stay to the vision and the mission of what Twin Oast is, but yet give you some freedom to think about, well, what's next? What's down the horizon? What do I do in five years? What do I do in 10 years? Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of where we're at. And we're a very seasonal business. So I don't have the whole year to be able to uh, to focus on the long-term vision. We have six months where we are absolutely haywire and six months where it's pretty slow. So I, I do a lot of my thinking in the wintertime. So how long has, uh, has Twin Oaks been open? So we opened in 2018. Just had our four-year anniversary in the past uh, May. Hey, congrats. And so going into our fifth summer, everyone says that time flies and I always thought by year five, we would have this really strong foothold into what we wanted to do and where we wanted to be. And we, you know, to an extent we do, we have a a lot of good core basics of who we are, but man, it's a ever-changing game and and it just makes things go by so quickly when you're trying to always reinvent, you know, how things are operating. And obviously with COVID coming into play, uh, that that threw a lot of things into, into for our loop as well. You probably get asked this an awful lot. Um, I know the first time that I picked up one of your beers at Harvest in Toledo, Twin Oast. What is an Oast? So can you tell my listeners what an Oast is? Yes, an Oast is a building that uh, back in Kent, England is where I believe they originated. They would be used to dry the hops. They're these weird uh, cylindriconical, it's almost like a fermenter upside down. They have like a, a little weather vane on top that helps pull the air out of the building. Basically... On the hop yards, they would have these buildings. The oasts part of it would have a fire down low and they would have the hops up top and the hops would kind of dry out and roast off a little bit. And then they would push it into the building and the building was just a packaging plant. So they'd put all the dry hops into, you know, the big sacks, uh, burlap sacks, and then ship them off to the breweries to be used. So for us, we're a brewery on a 60 acre farm. And when we were kind of trying to really nail down what we wanted to be, we ran into these hosts and we thought, what a cool concept and what a cool thing that, that really brings the farm and brewing worlds together. It was just kind of like, we have to do this. 
our hosts that are on property don't really have a, a normal function. Yep. Uh, they're more decorative. <laughs> we, we got a bar in one and we have a fire pit in the other, a little bit of a nod to the old school way that things were going, but they're more or less just a calling card for kind of who we want to be. And they're spectacular. I mean, we built those out of a hundred percent locally. Like when I say locally, I mean, when we did excavation for the building, we separated the rocks and those rocks were built into the hosts. Oh, so cool. it's like, I love that. You know, it's, it's a really cool uh, nod to keeping things local and keeping things, you know, farm to fermenter, which is, that's our whole mission. Since we're on that subject, can you tell me a little bit more about what that really means, farm to fermenter? So like I said, we're on a 60 acre farm. And when we first took over that farm, it was pretty much just a wasteland of weeds. The old farmer had passed years before we were like, we have to try and save this and salvage it because our area is very agricultural and there's a lot of houses and condos and development going on, but the people in the, the locals really like the fact that this is an agricultural area. They, they like that it's a little bit more rural and that there used to be peach trees everywhere. And so part of our mission was to keep the space as green as possible uh, while also being able to do something that's going to fulfill kind of our passion be able to keep paying for the rent of everything of, of, of owning the farm, the land is expensive out here. So, so this was a good way for us to kind of blend all that together. And uh, farm to fermenter means that what we grow on the farm, we try and use in our beers. And then in turn, what we make from the brewery, we try and put back into the farm. So uh, I think we've planted 500, 600 trees since we've opened and we're, That's cool. we're making some different beers, whether it's a, we got Lava Monster, which is an Imperial Red with hot peppers. Uh, we did a Saison with nasturtiums that we grew. We've done a uh, Berliner Weiss with apricots. We have an apricotaba that is a big seasonal for us. We've been supplementing apricots with that one because we have a had great harvest. But this year, we actually got to use some of our own. So awesome. that was pretty fun. Just really looking for any inspiration from where we are and what we grow to put into the beer to kind of give it our unique twin spin to, to what we're brewing. When I drove up back in May, I, I visited for the first time, go out to this location and I, and I see this driveway and I kind of drive up and then I see the, the building just kind of open up in this green lush area. So I've been to Europe, I've been to you know, Austria and Germany. It reminded me so much of like that landscape, you know, with your turrets, your oasts, you know, sticking up and the, the, the stonework just, just looked really amazing. So was that kind of your inspiration as well, besides the fact that you have the, the oast leaning, but then also kind of a nod to the, the German Bavarian brewing techniques? So I wouldn't quite go that far. I mean, okay. I, maybe deep down that, that kind of, <laughs> but we didn't want to have a brewery without some agricultural character. It probably would have been easy to put it right by the road. You'd see it as you drove past and all that, but that's not really the vibe we wanted. We wanted a place where you could kind of be off in, literally planted right into the uh, peach field. We built it off the road and that gives it this really vacation-like vibe where you're kind of in the field, looking at the water feature, you're drinking a beer, like you don't realize that you're just at a brewery, you kind of just feel like you're on vacation and it's kind of the, the whole atmosphere we were going for. Looking at some of the other farm-centric breweries that are out there, one of our biggest inspirations, and I think a lot of people would say the same thing, is New Glarus. So, you know, we went out there and we saw what they did, how they kind of utilized their space in a very different way than a lot of the breweries that you see. And then places like Hill Farmstead, where you're in the middle, you're in the middle of Vermont and 
even though there's not really a big city around, it's a, it's a drive away. People still want to come out and, and see what you guys are doing. And that's kind of the vibe we wanted to have too, which was let's build a destination. Let's build this place that really showcases the land and showcases uh, the area in a different way than just putting a brewery in a, in a strip mall per se. You're in Port Clinton. So originally I was like, you know, why Port Clinton? But I also know that, that in the summertime, you get a lot of traffic from people that are out to the lake and the Cedar Point, whatever the case may be. So it, it really is, I think, an ideal location for you to have this 60 acre green space in the middle of a developing area to have events like you've been having. I mean, like, I think I saw on your Instagram feed, you had a huge Father's Day event where, you know, I mean, you just had kids and I mean, people everywhere. It was pretty amazing. And I know you guys have yeah. done, I think you've done concerts there too, right? Because you've got a little amphitheater. Exactly. So the way that our land's kind of uh, structured, there's almost two dip downs. We're kind of on the top of a hill. And then on one side of the brewery, uh, there's a waterfall, small water feature, more than waterfall. Uh, <laughs> and then on the other side is a little amphitheater that's kind of natural. And so we put a stage down there and, you know, we do bands on there every Saturday in the summertime. But really what we first started doing there was big events. So we we brought in uh, Apricot Fest and we had 20 local vendors come in and, and sell their their locally crafted goods, whether it's, you know, we have a guy who grows garlic and makes random things out of garlic and we have people who do wooden signs and things like that. It's sure. Uh, and then we had a kid zone. So we had a petting zoo and bounce house, things like that. But then, yeah, we put big bands on the stage and, and kind of have this nice, uh, if you've ever been to... Uh, the blossom out in uh, towards Cleveland, you know, it's like a one one hundredth version of that. Okay. <laughs> a very small, just amphitheater where you can sit on the side of the hill under a willow tree and listen to music, and it's just a lot of fun. No, it's a beautiful space you you have there. I think it gives you a lot of uh, flexibility too, uh, with with the extra space to do some of these things you're talking about. And the other thing I like about what you're doing there at Twin Oast is that everything seems to be very family friendly. You know, there's enough space that if you wanted to have a beer out on the patio, you could let your kid go out and run around in the grass and not have to worry about him getting into mischief. We, we built it thinking, you know, I'm the youngest of the family and I know all my siblings when we first opened up had kids before I had kids. They were like, I need a place where I can go. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So with that kind of thought in mind, is kind of how that whole family centric or family friendly atmosphere was, you know, we didn't want to build a, a playground out there, but at the same time, we can kind of act like a park. People bring uh, kickball, they bring uh, wiffle ball and they go play games out in the field while their parents drink on the patio. And that's something that we knew from the beginning was a subgroup of people who would come to our place, but didn't realize that was going to almost become the main, you know, the main event, which is, I'm up in vacation land and I have four kids. I want to go have a beer while they go play and people just love it. And it's such a cool thing to see. I know we were talking a little bit earlier. Tell me about uh, your experience brewing. Currently, you're not doing that because you've given that responsibility <laughs> over. Um, yeah. How did you start out? I mean, I mean, were, was it was it your old older family members who were like, hey, let's I'm going to brew. Do you want to brew with me? Or was it just something you were just like, I want to do this on my own. I want to see what I can do. Yeah, it was actually uh, my oldest brother. He he got me a uh, a beer making kit for Christmas one year. wasn't a Mister Beer, but it was something yeah. along those lines. And going into my junior year of college, we started really getting into these random different uh, imported beers. And there was a, a bar in uh, Miami where I went to school, Miami of Ohio, uh, called Steinkeller. They brought in you know Franz Scotter and all these great wheat beers, and we were like, "What the hell is this? Like, this is <laughs> so different from what we're used to." Uh, and so we started 
trying out all the different craft breweries that were around and started really digging on these wheat beers. And so he bought a wheat beer kit and we were going to try and clone Bell's Oberon. That was going to eventually, okay. we did that and it was all extract and it was like, all right, this is a fun process, but you kind of got, or at least I did, I get um, very like uh, invested in something and then I started getting obsessed with it. And so went from all extract to all grain within like two brews, full force into the whole thing. Uh, started tinkering around, made our own rim system. My brother's an engineer, so we made this little automated system that went through our laptops that could uh, change the temperature up and down for our mash. So it was a lot of tinkering for us. And I, his friend always laughs. I ruined a lot of perfectly good grains and hops when I was home brewing, you know, just trying to do different things. But eventually through brewing with him and then brewing on my own, figuring out all the different techniques that, that worked. That's really what, what got me into it was just that strive of, or the, the strive for perfection and, and the strive for getting something that was better than what I was able to taste in the shelves, or at least in my opinion. Yeah. Like you said, once we got open, it was so hard to keep up with everything. So my grand vision was we were going to start with a 15 barrel brewery, brew seven barrels at a time because everyone I talked to was like, don't start too small. Don't start too small. That's the kiss of death. <laughs> so we, we started what we thought was phase two. And I said, I'll brew seven barrels at a time. Uh, we'll have 15 and 30 barrel fermenters and, and we'll just kind of have the equipment to grow, but, but brew at a small scale. Really by the end of the first summer, uh, we had a 60 barrel fermenter, you know, installed because we just could not keep up with beer. Sure, and so sure. I helped brew the first handful of times. Uh, we did bring in a head brewer immediately, just kind of uh, hedge our bets kind of thing. It was, I knew the process and obviously I know how to brew, but going from homebrew scale to a 15 barrel brew house is a little intimidating. Just making sure that from the get-go, we had good, clean, drinkable beer that was going to put a good foot forward. So we brought in, uh, his name was John out of California, um, and he was working at BJ's Brew House and he was, he's been brewing for 20 years. And so we brought him on and, you know, he helped us get off to a good foot. And so Ever since then, I've been kind of focusing more on the operations, specifically in the tap room and, and trying to make sure that our customers are having a good time when they're at the brewery. I know when I was there, like I said, it was, uh, it was a happening place. When I walked in, I thought, I'm not going to be able to find a seat because it was just packed in your, in your tap room there. The brewing side of things, clearly, if you are not able to keep up, that means you're putting out a, a really good product. So I applaud you for that because I know based on what you're saying with you know, the whole farm to fermenter, kind of get the, the feeling that you don't like artificial ingredients either, right? So anytime oh, you can God. use real real ingredients, right? Real fruit, real vegetables, whatever the ingredient might be. None of this flavoring. I mean, clearly you've got to do that from time to time, but that's not the norm for you there at Twin Oast. Yeah. So it's funny you mentioned that we have, we have a beer run on tap right now called Lemonberry Blaster. It's a blackberry shandy. We don't have a lot of blackberries right now. We were trying to figure out the best way to, uh, to really get that fruit flavor in there. Yeah. So our brewer and I, we were talking and, and his name's Will and he brought up this product and we were looking at the ingredients and it said natural flavorings. And I was like, no, we can't use this like this. The whole goal, especially with the first time we make a beer is let's try and make something that we can put our own spin onto and our own fruit into. We ended up finding a blackberry lemonade mix that was made with real fruit. So we made the base beer and then we mixed in the, the blackberry lemonade mix as well. Uh, and it turned out great. Like you said, I think people can tell 
I think when, when you have a beer that has extract in it or super artificial ingredients, I think people can tell it has that kind of medicinal back taste. It tastes like fruit. I want to avoid that at all costs. And if that means we're not using our real fruit at the time, that's fine because we'll eventually get there. Right. And especially uh, you suffer precedent early on. <laughs> so people, people yeah. get to expect that. Well, and it's funny because people don't realize that real fruit is very tart. And so there's a lot of beers, you know, we did a beer called Berry Delish that, that's actually coming out in a couple of weeks here for us. And the first two times we brewed it, we made a cream ale base and then it has puree of blueberry, blackberry, and raspberry. And so everyone hears that and expect this giant fruit bomb. But when you're just using the whole fruit, I mean, that's a very tart, uh, very acidic kind of beer. So we've had to change that base recipe to add a little bit more unfermentables to kind of sweeten it up a little bit to get where people were expecting. I mean, it's definitely a different take on, you can't just throw a, a flavoring in a batch and call it a day. And I think color-wise too, if you see a beer that's uh, a raspberry wheat and it comes out looking completely like a normal wheat beer or clear, it's like, uh, something's not quite right here. You know, it doesn't quite jive with me. So with using local ingredients, using real ingredients, do you find yourself currently having any kind of issues getting those to, to brew with? Yes and no. So, uh, you know, we try, like I said, try and use what we can from the farm. And we've done some stuff with uh, some other local farms. Quarry Hill down in Huron uh, has given us some apples before so that we can use like in our ice shove, which is a, it's a Belgian white IPA with apple and rosemary. So there's a lot going on in that beer. That sounds killer, man. <laughs> it's it's a really fun, fun seasonal for us. And we just, we put whole apples in there and we didn't have a good harvest. So we did that. But if we're going outside of local, we usually just use the Oregon fruit purees that are pretty popular in the brewing industry right now. And it's a safe bet, but yeah, we, we try and stick as much local as we can. I know that hop growers are springing up all over the place. Are there any local hop farms that you use? Mainly the big guys right okay. now. Okay. One of the things that's hard with that is to create such a consistent product that is, you know, what we all, all strive for. You need to have the right data on the hops. There's a lot of things that the smaller companies can't give us right now in terms of, you know, certain measurables that we need to build the recipes. That being said, we just put out a beer. It was a pilot batch system we did, and it was made with all hops grown from Oak Harbor. Uh, just cool. a customer of ours who was like, hey, we're growing hops. Do you want some? We're like, sure, let's try it out. And it turned out awesome. We got two half barrels out of it and it was literally gone in a day. That's another one. It's like, okay, maybe we can't get all the measurables, but if we can get close to the same beer every time right. uh, using the same product, I mean, those are some really quality hops that turned out great. So I, I can't poo-poo it completely, but yeah, it's one of those, it's scary to use when you don't quite know what you're putting into the beer. And I suppose too, you could even go the route of doing like a, a fresh or, you know, like a wet hop, you know, kind exactly. of thing too, when they're fresh and see what happens with that. And it's, and it's a seasonal, might vary from season to season, but if you have your base yeah. recipe. We tried to uh, grow our own hops the first year. And I actually was growing hops for like five years before the brewery opened thinking by the time these are mature, I'll be able to, to use them. As they were growing, you know, we were farming and we were realizing, hey, I don't think this brewery is going to happen. <laughs> so the hops kept getting transplanted and they kept getting mislabeled. And by the end of it, when we opened, I had no idea what hops were what. They're just in a row and, and I have some growing. And I said, well, let's do what you said. We'll, we'll call it an estate pale ale. It'll be a different vintage every year and we'll just use what we can grow. And uh, we did that year one and it turned out great. It was this really cool, uh, like honeydew melon kind of flavor to it. 
and have not been able to do it since. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, something like that, it works out if you can just, you, you just kind of trust the process a little bit, but it's one that I want to do again once I can spend more time cultivating those hops. I had the same grand idea. So I thought, well, you know, if I grow my own hops, then maybe I can brew my own and have some that's kind of unique. A couple of years ago, I bought a hop plant. It was a, uh, it was a Chinook. And the first year it grew maybe 10 feet tall. I had maybe a handful of good hops. I have it planted next to my um, television antenna. So last year, I think yeah. you were like 30 feet up in the air. When your hops, the cones start maturing, they mature from the bottom up. So by the time the end of the summer, you know, I'm trying to get up on, you know, I'm climbing this pole. Right. Uh, this is not safe at all for me to be doing this. And then of course, here in, in Northwest Ohio, we had such a wet, warm winter that rotted on me. So I lost, yeah. but it was, it was a fun experiment. I, I'm going to try it again at some point. So. I don't think people realize how much effort goes into hops. <laughs> right. People are like, oh, you should grow some hops. And I'm like, I would need a whole crew yeah. that's going to take care of a few acres so that we can actually use them in the brewery. And, you know, if I had two acres of hops and we could use them, you know, once a year, I think that'd be the coolest thing. But it's an investment that, that we need to grow into at this point. Last call. Well, it's nearly time to wrap things up. But first, one more for the road. This episode, I'm drinking Gathering from Wildside in Grand Rapids, Ohio. This is a wild ale from the brewery. A wine barrel aged American wild ale blended with cranberry, apple, vanilla, and cinnamon. Merry Christmas from Wildside. Well, this American wild ale clocks in at 7% ABV. Without further delay, in light of this episode's topic of skunked beers, I thought this would be a perfect opportunity to talk about American Wild Ales. If you've never had one, be prepared. They are a style I really enjoy. Even though my palate appreciates the mouth-puckering sour tartness, it has taken my nose a bit longer to appreciate the aroma. American Wild Ales are a sour beer that use a specific yeast strain called Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which literally means sugar fungus. It is more commonly known as brewer's yeast or baking yeast. The cool thing is that this yeast strain is likely to have been cultured from the skin of grapes originally, which is why it is also a favorite for winemaking. American wild ales are also typically fermented with Britannomyces, which give them that great funky profile. So as I pour this out into a nice snifter glass, this beer pours a pale to deep gold color. It has a fair amount of uh, head to it, very fine. Actually kind of dissipates quite quickly. It's definitely got that funky aroma that I was talking about earlier that wild ales have. So as I take a uh, first sip of this, massive mouth puckering tartness with just a little sip. That is so good. It's got a little bit of a, a cinnamon spice kick in there. Definitely getting a little bit of vanilla on this as well. The nose definitely, it's uh, really, really funky. With that being said, once you get your lips on the, the beer itself, it's got a great profile to it. It's got a lot of, uh, I'd say, fruit tartness. Definitely getting some of that, that cranberry kind of uh, bitterness deep down in there because there's a little bit of uh, kind of a, a mouth-coating feel that's left. So after that initial sip that I took, the tartness, the sourness, my mouth has definitely gotten used to it because now I can take a sip without my whole face contorting. That's not a bad thing. Again, I love a, a beer that gives you a great tart, sour flavor. 
and I definitely get that just a hint of vanilla just to smoothen things out. Mm, this is uh, super refreshing. It's a super fun beer too. As I review usually, I'm doing a lot of uh, smelling of the the beer, and uh, every time every time I hit that aroma, it just uh, sets me back uh, on my heels. Great funky profile to it. So I've gone back to this several times now. Uh, it's got a lot of complexity to it, a lot of layers to it. So even though this beer was aged in wine barrels, honestly, I really don't get a whole lot of that on the profile. I might get just a hint of grape, maybe a little bit on the aroma underneath that, that funky aroma, but it's very, very, very subtle. So uh, well done. I want to thank owner and head brewer Nick for sharing this bottle for review. I look forward to uh, sitting down at some point and uh, getting you on the podcast. So Wildside, I give this one four tasters out of five on the flight board. Cheers! If you've got a beer you'd like me to drink and describe, leave a comment below. If you're a brewer and have one in mind, direct message me on Instagram and let's see what we can do. Well, that's all for this episode of the 5 Beer Plan. With so many podcasts out there, thanks for choosing to listen to mine. Join me next time when I talk about my favorite college towns for beer, share another hop hack, and wrap up my conversation with Corey Smith from Twin Oaks Brewing. Remember to hit the subscribe button to be notified of new episodes. I'd love to hear from you, so please follow me on Instagram, 5beerplan2022, and leave a comment to let me know if you've ever experienced a skunked beer. Be sure to visit your local breweries, choose your beers wisely, and drink them responsibly. Until next time, keep walking your ale trail, and stay thirsty, my friends! <laughs>